Exodus chapter 3. And uh, we continue here in our study on I am, still is. <clears throat> and uh, what we saw in our last message was that Moses was not the deliverer that Israel really needed. He's now back on the backside of the desert in Arabia, perfectly content to dwell in the land of Midian with his father-in-law, his wife, and his son, and uh, not really giving much concern for the people of Israel. In fact, he ends up in the wilderness for 40 years before God calls him back. And as we enter into chapter 3, I want to just touch on the final three verses of chapter 2 to give us a good reading. We'll just cover the first six verses here of Exodus chapter 3. Really wanted to preach through verse 10 for this message, but I think there's something here that God wants us to park on, and uh, that's very important to his revelation of himself to the nation of Israel and to Moses in particular. And so what we're going to be looking at here over the next couple of weeks is really how God responded to the affliction and the oppressed condition of his people. And so let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 23, and we'll read on into chapter 3. It says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. And so the question now is, God sees, God hears, now what's God going to do? Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The title of our message tonight is this, I am is still holy. I am is still holy. May God bless his word. You can be seated. We'll get into our message. You've probably seen some commercial on TV that gets you emotional, makes your heart go out to someone. We've all seen those commercials of Compassion International or something like that where 
They bring up on the screen uh, some poverty-stricken African child from some remote village in Africa, you know, and they've got just the the straight-faced stare. They've got maybe even some tears flowing down their eyes, and you see those, and it just kind of hits you in the heart, and you realize, first of all, how good we have it in America and how poorly they have it there, and you say, that just doesn't seem to be right. i got to be able to do something here, and they have just the right solution. Send $1 a day, and you can take care of this child every single month. And so your heart goes out, and sometimes you might contribute to something like that. We've seen the commercials with the scraggly, skinny old dog that was rescued, and, and they've got, they keep putting up the pictures of these things, and I mean, they really are sad. They're pitiful, and by the end of the commercial, you feel like going down to the Humane Society and trying to rescue one of those little puppies. We have missionaries come to our church and they present their ministry. They show their video. And a lot of times after a missionary shows the video, especially when it focuses on the people they're going to reach and you see the faces and you hear the desperation of the situation there and their lack of gospel witness and their lack of any kind of Christian influence there, that your heart goes out and you just want to give them all your money and you want to run through a wall to go and help those people receive the gospel. A lot of times that's how it feels. Why is that? Well, the prophet Jeremiah said this, mine eye affecteth mine heart. Mine eye affecteth mine heart. And so whenever we see something that presents a need, that what we see affects our heart and it brings us to leap at the opportunity to help. Why are we wired that way? Well, it's because we are made in the image of God and God's eye affects his heart. In the end of Exodus 2, we read about how God looked upon the children of Israel. He saw their oppressed condition. He saw the way the Egyptians had been treating them for the last 200 plus years in this uh, hard bondage and putting the taskmasters over them as people were beaten day after day in hard labor under the hot desert sun of Egypt. He saw their pain. He knew their sorrow. He heard their groans and their cries. And so God saw the condition of his people and his eye affected his heart. And God is ready to burst onto the scene in chapter three and remind his people who the God of their fathers is. And so God was ready to step in. His eye affected his heart and it moved him to respond And so he appears to Moses here in chapter three in the midst of a burning bush and he commissions Moses to go and deliver his people. Can I say to you today that God still sees the way that we are afflicted by sin? The reality is what the Israelites were experiencing under the heavy hand of the Egyptians was a cause of sin. It's because there was sin in the Egyptians' hearts. There was selfishness, there was pride, there was fear, violence, and evil in their hearts, and they took that evil out upon the Israelites. And every single thing that we see today that is evil stems from sin. Down at the parade this afternoon, gunshots were fired, and two people were injured as a result. 
That's because of sin. There was a police officer. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Denver Nuggets Championship Parade because, yes, we did win that for the first time ever in the history of Nuggets franchise. We happened to be down there this morning and went down there, took the kids for that, enjoyed that time. But there were some tragic things that happened. One of them was that a police officer was run over by one of the fire trucks carrying the players. And he's in the hospital right now in critical condition. Why did that happen? Because we're flawed. Because we don't do things perfect. We, we are sinners. And because we are sinners, things happen that cause pain and suffering. Abuse is the result of sin. Incest is the result of sin. Uh, drunkenness is the result of sin. Drunk driving accidents are the result of sin. Cancer is the result of sin. Infection is the result of sin. Poverty is the result of sin. Every pain and suffering that we face in life is because of sin, and sin will be our greatest oppressor that we'll ever have. But I want you to know God sees it. That as we look around in our country today and how difficult life is becoming for Bible-believing Christians and how the, the, hey, I mean, this is just something else that came up. There was a man down there at the parade. I mean, you got almost a million people there at Civic Center Park, and there was a man there holding up a giant sign that said, Jesus saves, you must repent and believe the gospel. And he was trying to share the gospel there. And people were hovering around him, yelling and screaming at him and casting vulgarities at him. And, and as we look at that and we can just wonder, does God see our oppressed condition? Does God see the affliction that we face? And I realize we have it pretty easy in America, but there are Christians all around the world who face life or death matters for their faith every single day. And there are times when we've got health problems going on and we're wondering, does God see? And what the end of chapter two tells us is that God does see and it assures us that God's eye affects his heart and that he wants to step in and he wants to deliver us because he's a God who can deliver us from our afflicted condition. But here's the question that we approach as we come into chapter three. And again, I mentioned really we could preach through verse 10 and that was how the message started. And I stuck with point one so that we didn't have an hour and 10 minute message. And so we're just really going through point one, but I wanted to stop here and emphasize really this. How does God first respond to man's afflicted condition? How does God first respond? What's the very first thing that God does when he sees the affliction of his people and he's ready to step in? Because by way of application, I want to show you really what the first step is to being delivered by God. God's initial response to Israel's afflicted condition was to reveal his holy nature. He revealed his holy nature. Moses has been tending to his father-in-law's flock in the Arabian desert. And it says that God arrests his attention there on the backside of this desert. It says in verse number one, that he came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Now Horeb would have been a, a region, a part of the range there in the southern tip of Saudi Arabia, modern day Saudi Arabia. And uh, it would be like we talk about the front range, which is really from 
about Denver on up to the Wyoming border. That's the front range of the Rocky Mountains. But in that range, you have specific peaks like Long's Peak and Meeker Peak and Hallett Peak and, and all those different peaks. When you consider where Moses is at, Horeb is like the front range. Mount Sinai is an individual peak. And Mount Sinai is where Moses is. Because Mount Sinai is where God is going to reveal himself to the children of Israel. And later in this chapter, God tells Moses, we are go I'm going to bring my people out and you're going to serve me on this mountain. And Sinai is where God led them. And that's why it says that he came to the mountain of God. And there on the mountain of God, it says in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. Now, there's some mystery around who is this angel of the Lord. There are several times throughout the Old Testament when you see this terminology used, the angel of the Lord, and sometimes it represents a regular angel, a messenger of God. Gabriel was an angel of the Lord. Michael was an angel of the Lord. And so there are other times there's an anonymous angel of the Lord. The Old Testament word angel means a messenger, so somebody that God has sent on his behalf. But there are a few instances in the Old Testament where you can clearly see it's more than just an ordinary angel. And this is one of those cases because what you notice here in verse two is it says the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. But then when you go to verse four, it says that the Lord saw that he turned aside to see and God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And so what you have here is a distinction is drawn between the angel of the Lord and God. And yet you find they are one and the same person. They are both the flame of fire in the midst of the bush. And so this leads many people to believe that this is perhaps an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. That because, because this is the physical expression, the visible expression of God's nature, to Moses that this would be a manifestation of Jesus. Colossians chapter one tells us that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, that Jesus Christ is the way that we see God. Jesus even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so while we can't be a hundred percent dogmatic, it seems to suggest based on the fact that there is a distinction here and yet they are one and the same that it's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he appears to him in this flame of fire, in this bush, and the end of verse number two says that behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. Now, the angel of the Lord appears in the midst of this bush and in the bush not being consumed, you have this constant burning fire that's not consuming the bush altogether where the bush is not going away. What God is doing here is he's revealing himself to Moses as a God who overrides natural order 
a God who uh, commands creation in a way that nobody else can. As Moses is leading this flock through the wilderness, it wouldn't be abnormal at all for him to see a bush on fire. I mean, we are talking about the Arabian desert here, whether it's lightning strike or something else happens that causes a spark and this bush catches on fire. That would not be abnormal at all. But Moses is walking by. He sees this bush on fire, but he notices it's not going away. This is weird. And he says, I, this is a strange sight. I've got to stop. I've got to check this out and see why is the bush not burned? And so uh, Moses comes by there and he looks at this bush. He sees that it's not uh, burning. And God sees that Moses turns aside to see. It says in verse four, and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. He mentions his name twice there. Now, if you see a bush that isn't being consumed, you know, maybe I should have brought one of these bushes over here. This thing's on fire. It's not being consumed. And he's saying, what is this all about? So it's already a little bit weird. And he starts stepping a little closer and out of this fire, Moses, Moses, you know, probably stepping back. You know, when his staff turns into a snake later on, he runs and hides. That's the kind of man that Moses was at this point. There were certain things he didn't like, but this voice calls to his name, but it's almost like with the, the double mentioning of his name, like it was urgent, Moses, Moses, you know, that's how you do. Uh, I'll say that to my kids when they're about to jump off something and hurt themselves. Josiah, Josiah, stop. <laughs> that's the sense that you get here. Why? Because God tells him in verse uh, number five, draw not nigh hither. In other words, Moses is making his way over to this bush to check it out and see, and God says, stop right there. <laughs> Don't come any closer. In fact, you need to take your shoes off because the ground upon which you are standing, he says, it is holy ground. A couple things here. First of all, the shoe would be the filthiest of all clothing materials. They wore sandals. It was very dry, very dusty, very desert-like. And so it, the shoe represented all kinds of filth. And that's why anytime they went to a, a friend's home that they would have their, high, their, their lowest household servant would go and wash their feet, get the dust off their feet. I remember vividly whenever Saddam Hussein was killed and they pulled down his statue, you saw all the Iraqi people there chucking their shoes at him. And so even in the Middle East today, the shoe is a, a sign of disdain and, and filth and evil. And so that's what the shoe is. But as Moses is approaching this bush and God speaks out of the bush, he says this, there is a distance between me and you. There is a chasm. There is an expanse. And that distance must be maintained. You cannot approach unto me. In fact, you need to take the filth off your feet because where you are standing is holy ground. This is the first time thus far in the Bible when the word holy is used in reference to God. And that's significant. It means that God is revealing something new about himself. And that is that he is holy. Holy means to be set apart. It means to be distinct. It means to be other than. And so what God is saying is, I as God and you as man 
There must be difference between us. There must be distance between us. Why? Because God is holy and man is unholy. And man cannot be in God's presence. Man cannot look upon God because of his sin. As we consider what's going on here, this God is manifesting his nature. First of all, he is in a consuming fire. His holiness burns as bright as the sun and would consume anybody who comes face to face with it. Not only that, but it's eternal. This bush is not being consumed. It's a fire that burns constantly and continuously and does not flame out. God's holiness is eternal. His holiness demands distance. When you consider the picture and the image of this fire and the revelation of God's holiness, what it tells us is this, that God is to be taken seriously. Because in this burning bush, God has revealed his holiness in a way that has not yet been revealed. And Moses at a later time in the book of Deuteronomy is going to come to the place where he tells Israel, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And the context of that is make sure that you obey God because he is a fire. His holiness is a fire that will consume you when you violate his holiness. I just wonder if that has something to do with why hell is portrayed as a fiery place. Because God's wrath is a consuming fire against sin. And what we understand is that fire is to be taken seriously. Last week, the Boulder County Sheriff's Department released their final investigation into the 2021 December 30th Marshall Fire that wiped out over a thousand homes, including some members of our church here and some others that we were in contact with. And this fire came through. I mean, the most devastating fire in Colorado history. And their investigation revealed that the primary cause of this fire came from a legal material burn on Christmas Eve. So a week before this happened, or a little over a week before this happened, what happened is there was a group uh, of people that were that lived out there. They had this uh, this commune, so to speak. There's a lot of people that live there. They were doing a, a material burn. It was legal. The firemen checked it out. Uh, neighbors had reported smoke. They checked it out and everything. And they determined that their handling of it was correct, that they were burning the material. And then their plan was to bury it. They looked around. They saw there was a massive pool over here. So there was plenty of water to be able to get to it and put this out. Everything had been, uh, everything had been taken care of and done the right way. And so on Christmas Eve, the fire burned down to coals. They buried it under the dirt. Everything was great. Everything was fine. And then on December 30th, we had an epic windstorm bringing in the first winter storm of that year, <laughs> New Year's Eve. And there were over 100 mile an hour wind gusts. In that particular area, if you've ever driven Highway 93, you know the wind comes swooping down off those mountains. That's probably where the most rollovers take place in the state of Colorado is on Highway 93. I remember driving down from skiing, and we would come through there, and we'd always see on the way home, we'd see people blown over on the side of the road. Little cars, trucks, didn't matter. Thankfully, it never happened to us, but that's just what you saw. It was very windy there. Well, what happened is a week after that fire was supposedly extinguished, these 100-mile-an-hour winds came through, and they blew the dirt 
off of those coals and it exposed those coals to fresh oxygen and it began to spark and to rekindle the fire. And in a very quick time, it started a brush fire that just exploded, burned up half a Costco, burned up several commercial buildings, and of course put a thousand people without a home. Well, more than a thousand people, a thousand homes without a place to stay that night. It was a very destructive fire. But because, and what they determined was that because the water was not poured upon the dirt, that is ultimately what led to the fire being blown over again. And what that tells us is this, that in a moment of not taking a a small pile of coals of fire, seriously, it blew up. And what God is trying to get across to us today is like fire is to be taken seriously. God is to be taken seriously. Why? Because he is holy. He is other than us. He is distinct from us. He is not like us. He has no sin nature. He is perfect, sinless, harmless, undefiled. He does all things right all the time. Perfectly just. He's holy. This holy God reveals himself to Moses in verse six. He says, I am the God of thy father, Amram. Moses' father, Amram, remember his, mo- his father, Amram, his mother, Jochebed, that they raised him properly. They saw there's something about this child. God had, had evidently revealed to them that he was going to be the deliverer of Israel because by the time he was 40, he went to defend his brother, supposing they would, uh, they would see that he's going to be the deliverer and the ruler over them. His father was a man of faith. And he says, I want you to know I'm the God of your father. But it goes back before that. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God that you have always heard about, but never known firsthand. That is me calling to you out of this burning bush. And you'll notice at the end of verse six that it says, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. He sees the bush, it's burning. He's a little curious. He says, I've got to go figure out why this thing isn't consumed. And so he begins to walk over there and the voice cries out to him. You need to stop. Don't come. Keep the distance between us. And then he says, I am God. (laughs) He covers his face for he's afraid to look upon God. And it's a good thing he did because in Exodus chapter 33 and verse number 20, God said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. In the presence of a holy God, Moses realized he was an unholy man. Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13 says, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on evil. That God's eyes are so pure, they're so holy that they can't look on evil. But notice the opposite is true. That man's eyes are so evil and so wicked that they cannot look upon God lest they would perish. 
God is connecting Moses here back to the God of his fathers. And he wants Moses to understand that the God that his fathers faithfully served and the God who is calling him and the God who's going to redeem Israel from bondage is a holy God. And God cannot be approached on Moses' terms. He must come on God's terms. And so what we see here is that God first responded to Israel's afflicted condition by revealing himself to be a holy God. And you know what that tells us, folks? The first step to being delivered by God is to recognize that God is a holy God. The reality is that God is still holy today. And we are still unholy today. And our unholiness creates a space. It creates an expanse, a chasm, a distance between us and God, because we cannot come to approach God. We cannot come to heaven in our sinful and unholy condition for the fiery, the consuming fire of God's holiness would consume us like that in our sin. And so we've got to recognize that we can only approach God on his terms and not ours. God's holiness is why we cannot have eternal life in heaven in the presence of God. It's why all our sin must be taken away for us to be able to go to heaven. We must be delivered from our sin. We've got to come to terms with the fact that God is infinitely holier than I am, or we can never be delivered. Yet fallen man typically responds to God's holiness in one of two ways. First of all, fallen man responds to God's holiness by proclaiming his own goodness. When they look at God and they're confronted with his holiness, that the just judgment for sin is eternity in hell, man says this, I'm not that bad a person. That's what we've seen on Sunday mornings in the Gospel of Luke. That's what the Pharisees did. They tried to justify themselves. And so when people are confronted with the holiness of God and they're confronted with the wickedness of themselves, that instead of, instead of realizing there's a distance between me and God and a gap needs to be bridged, they stand back at a greater distance saying, no, God is evil and I am good because how could God be good if he would send someone as good as me to a place like hell? And so people proclaim their own goodness. They either do that or what they do is they minimize God's holiness. It's either proclaim my goodness or minimize God's holiness. And thus there are some who would hold to the position that, well, a, a loving God could not send people to hell. And so what I think, and that's always a bad place to start, what I think, I just can't get that kind of God in my mind. And so what I think's really going to happen is in the end, God's love is going to gain the victory over his holiness. And so at the end of time, when all the unsaved dead stand before God, God is going to show them who he is. They're all going to believe his love's going to win them over. And in the end, love wins. That's out there. There's a whole book written on it. But what that's doing is it's separating God's love from his holiness. 
It's minimizing his holiness. It's to suggest that God's not really that different from us because God would respond to sin in a way that we would respond to sin. It's, it's minimizing God's holiness, but let me also say this, that there are, there are Christians who would also do the same thing. That they would, they, would, they would try when they realize that I'm not very good, what they do is they use the excuse to say, well, because, uh, because God has forgiven me, because God has saved me, he doesn't really care about how I live. And thus, it doesn't matter what kind of TV I watch. It doesn't matter what kind of music I listen to. It doesn't matter how I go about a relationship. God's okay if I'm living with my boyfriend or girlfriend. God's okay if I watch these things on TV. God's okay if I'm, if I'm doing things the way that I want to instead of following his word. God's perfectly okay. I know what the Bible says, but we've talked about that before. And what they're doing is they're minimizing God's holiness trying to diminish God's holiness so as to bridge the gap between sinful man and a holy God. But God reveals that there is a gap. God reveals that there is a chasm that must be bridged, but that chasm cannot be bridged by proclaiming our own goodness or by minimizing God's holiness. That's not the pathway to draw closer to God. That's not the way that Moses, let's just think about it here. The bush is burning. God speaks out of the bush and he says, don't come any closer. No man can see me and live. And Moses said, God, I'm not that bad. He comes a little closer. Or you're not really that holy. I mean, if we read that, that'd be preposterous. And yet that's what so many people do day to day. I'm, they see the firing, the fiery, consuming holiness of God. And they say, I'm not that bad. And God's not that holy. But what God is doing here with Moses is he's clearing off a spot from the very beginning that the God who is coming to deliver them is a holy God, that he is altogether different and that his holiness is a consuming fire. A.W. Tozer said this, I want God to be what God is. The impeccably holy, unapproachable, holy thing, the all holy one. I want him to be and remain the holy. I want his heaven to be holy and his throne to be holy. Listen to this. I don't want him to change or modify his requirements. Even if it shuts me out, I want something holy left in the universe. See, do you realize this? If God were not holy, if God were not sinless, if God were not just, if he was not infinitely different than us, then you are taking the omniscience, the omnipotence, the omnipresence of God, the immutability of God, the eternality of God, the justice of God. You're taking all of those things and you are putting all of those attributes in the hands of a sinful person. And that would not be good for any of us. Could you imagine if Hitler was omniscient? Could you imagine if Hitler had the omnipotence of God? How much evil he would bring upon people. And that's what Tozer is saying. This world is unholy. This world is wicked. 
it is evil, it is violent, and, and all the things going on around us just shows us, and the groaning that comes out of our heart tells us, I was made for something better than this. That's really the groaning of Israel in Egyptian bondage. We weren't made to be slaves. We were made to be free. And that's really the cry of our hearts. Why do people cry out against gun violence? It tells them there's not supposed to be gun violence. They were made for a world better than this. And thus, here's what the truth is. If God is not holy, if God is not righteous, if he is not pure, if he is not just, we have no hope of escaping this mess we live in today. We need God to be holy. We need him to be righteous. We need him to be pure because none of us are. And anchoring ourselves to his holiness tells us that one day we will be able, by the grace of God, to enter into a world that is not defiled by sin and wickedness and evil like we have it today. The question here is this then. Okay. There's a gap between us and God. The longings of our heart to escape this evil, this violence, this addiction, this bondage that we experience today, it tells us this. We want what God is. We long for what God is. I mean, even think about the racial equality movement and Black Lives Matter, and, and there are ways to go about things that don't help the situation. But when you think about it, crying out for racial justice is ultimately saying we need what God is. Amen. What do you mean by that? Well, God made everybody, didn't he? <laughs> Diverse, different colors, different shapes, different sizes. In his, in his creativity and the beauty that he desired to make, he made everybody different and yet the same. Acts tells us of one blood we were made. And so that's what the cry is for racial justice. We want it to be God's way. <laughs> they just don't recognize that it only comes from God. That as long as man is in charge, they're going to use those things to oppress people, to bring them back into bondage. And so there's this cry that there's this distance between us and God, but we want to draw near. We want to come close. Even if we don't see it as God, the longing of our soul is to have life reestablished God's way. But there's this gap. How does it get bridged? If I can't bridge this gap between God by myself, if I am too evil to look upon God and God is too holy to look upon me, then what is the solution here? It's to come to God on his terms and not our terms. Well, what are the established terms? Well, God said this, your sin already condemns you. And there's nothing you can do about it because all your righteousness is filthy rags. Every good thing that you could do is still tainted by some kind of sin in your life because nobody's sinless, nobody's perfect, nobody's holy. And so how does this gap get bridged? Well, God came and took on human flesh 
and he lived a sinless life. He lived all the holy nature of God confined into a human body and he lived it out and he was the express image. Here's, here's what we have. God revealed his holy nature in human flesh. And so when we consider our afflicted condition, when we consider the expanse that is between us and God and the oppressive nature of sin and the bondage that we live under, when we consider how bad that is, what this tells us is God saw it and God was ready to step in and God was ready to deliver us from this unholy sin-cursed world and the way he did it was just like in the burning bush. He showed up in a visible expression who was the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person who lived that holy life on our behalf and yet went to the cross and shed his blood as the atonement for our sin so that when we place our faith in the Lord Lord Jesus Christ, God credits us with his righteousness and places our sin on Jesus Christ and thus he has removed the sin and give us an, uh, given us the righteousness that is acceptable with God and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He revealed his holy nature in visible expression and Jesus is the bridge that makes it possible for us to draw near to God. I love the book of Hebrews and I'm going to love it even more after going through Exodus and then Leviticus and then jumping forward to the book of Hebrews. I know I'm going to love it even more because we're going to see all these things right there. But as he's talking about how, how Jesus is the better Moses, Jesus is the better priest, Jesus is the better temp tabernacle, he is the better sacrifice, he says, let us draw near in full assurance. That means through Jesus Christ, we could approach the fiery, consuming holiness of God. Through Jesus Christ, we can stand in his presence and live. Not because we proclaimed our own goodness and not because we minimized God's holiness, but because God's holiness took out his wrath upon Jesus in our place he satisfied his wrath in love, and thus you have the perfect marriage of the holy love of God. And to minimize his holiness to this level brings his love down to this level. And when you maximize his holiness to what it really is, and we see ourselves as the unholy beings we are, and yet he loved us so much that he laid down his own life for us, us. That is how we see the love of God in his holiness. God wants us to know today that I am is still holy. And I want to remind you today that as a Christian, the God we serve is still just as holy today as he was in that fiery bush and he's just as holy today as he was on the holy mountain of God. 
He's still different. He's still distinct. He's still other than. There's still a distance between us and him. And we've got to remember that he is so infinitely pure and holy that without Jesus Christ, we could not stand in his presence. And he's calling upon us out of the same bush all these years later saying, I am still holy. The Bible says nine different times that we as his people are to be holy for God is holy. He saved us not just to remove our sin for eternity, but to make us holy today, to make us his ambassadors, to restore us to who we were originally created to be, and that is image bearers. And part of bearing his image is manifesting to the creation the holiness of God. He has called us to be a holy people. And yet in our modern times, Christians have lost the vision of the holiness of God. And they're constantly trying to lower the standard of holiness in God's people. The apostle Paul said, shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God's plan was not to save us just so that his grace would cover a multitude of our sins and we could go and live however we wanted to. No, his plan was to make us holy, to restore us into his image, to make us uh, put off to the world the, the wonder of who our holy God is. But Christians think that God doesn't expect us to be as holy as him that God is okay with alcohol and moderation and God is okay with marijuana. I mean, he made it in the first place, didn't he? And God is okay with homosexuality and God is okay with gender transition and God is okay with using secular music in church as long as it's to attract the lost. God is okay with uh, somebody living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend uh, as, as long as uh, they are committed in that relationship and, and rather than considering what God has instituted, namely marriage. <clears throat> Here's what we find. Christians living how they want according to the system of a broken world and minimizing God's holiness to justify those actions. This is widespread. There are churches Wine, women, and the word. Beers, bros, brats, and Bibles. There are probably Christian weed shops now. All in the name of trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. No. You know what I've found in my interactions with secular people, with agnostics, and some who even come to our church on a consistent basis? Here's what I've, here's what I've come to believe based on those conversations, and I'll not give in detail what those are, but here's what I've come to believe. The new, I'm just going to call it what it is, the less holy version of Christianity is not really to engage the lost. It's to satisfy Christians who don't want to be the holy people that God has called them to be. And here's the reason I say that. I have yet to, yet, I, I'm talking probably over the last 10 years, I have yet to meet a secular person, an atheist or agnostic or just a non-believer. I've yet to meet one who is attracted by the liberalism going on within Christianity. 
I'm talking about coworkers that I've had extensive conversations with at church. They find it to be, or at work, excuse me. They find it to be ridiculous that Christians would introduce things that sound like ACDC and Eminem into their worship services. It's laughable to them. I'm trying to be transparent with you here. I have talked to some who have come to our church here at Boulder Valley Baptist Church who are seeking the truth and they've not been drawn to the truth before coming here and hearing the word of God. They've not been so drawn to the truth and the reason why is because all the places that they've gone offer more of the same. That's a quote, more of the same. And so based off of those kind of conversations, which are several again, I'm convinced lowering God's standard is not truly to engage the lost. It is to minimize the holiness of God and to justify Christian people living after the flesh. Because they can go to a church where nobody's going to say, you should get married and not just live with them. You should not take the pleasure without the responsibility. They can go to churches and find that. And thus they feel more comfortable. But you know what we're not doing? We're not maximizing the holiness of God. And we're not understanding who he's called us to be. I don't know how you get around be ye holy, for I am holy. And some would say, well, that's Old Testament mandates. That's law. We are free from the law. We don't have to hold on to those things. What we find as we go later into Exodus and as we go into Leviticus, that the laws communicate the nature of a holy God. And God's nature does not change. He gave the specific stipulations to his holy people to show them who he is as a holy God. And that nature has not changed. And so thus, God still believes the same about marriage, that it's one man for one woman for one lifetime. And God still believes in the sanctity of life, that he forms children in their mother's womb, and he knows them by name before their parents ever name them. And he has a plan, and he has a purpose for that precious child. That he created people to be the gender he created them to be. And that he has a purpose in that gender. God is still the same. He does not change. People look at high Christian standards as a form of legalism and religion, but the reality is that abstaining from alcohol and other mind-numbing and mind-altering uh, drugs and substances, having a holy and reverend worship service that is distinct from a secular rock concert, preserving heterosexuality, gender identity, the sanctity of the marriage union, none of those things, are you listening? None of those things are religion. They are matters of holiness. They are matters of of God's morality. But God never changes. Just because we are forgiven by grace through faith in Christ, it doesn't mean we can change the, standardness, the standard of God's holiness. We can't change it. Understand, none of us are going to be perfect. But when we understand the holiness of God and how far short we fall of it, we recognize the distance. We recognize our need 
to be brought back to God. And the problem with America today and the reason why we have spiraled so far down morally is because we try to attack the problems while dismissing the holiness of God. But if we would all see our broken condition, we would see our need to be delivered. And thus we would look on God's terms and not our own for how we could be delivered. And that is through the provisional atonement in the death of Jesus Christ. And so the first step in being delivered is to understand that God is holy. When we see God for how holy he is, our eyes affect our hearts and it moves us to response. And so because God is holy and we are sinful, we do not stand a chance in judgment without having the sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can't achieve his righteousness on our own, but we can freely receive it by faith in Christ. There's an acronym for grace, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That because Christ gave his life, we can receive God's righteousness. And that's the only way to be acceptable into heaven and with God is if we have a perfect, sinless righteousness. But thank God he doesn't put, us on, put it on us to achieve it. He achieved it for us and gives it to us by faith. And if you'll trust Christ tonight, you can receive his righteousness and be delivered. In church, God is still holy. And he still calls us, his people, to be holy. So let me just ask you a few questions and we'll be done. Do you talk in a way that reflects God's holiness? Or the words that you use, what we would classify as profanity, which means godless language. God has called you to be holy in your speech. Does your relationship reflect God's holiness? Does it blend in with the culture's idea of relationships? Is there moral purity in that relationship? Is there faithfulness in your marriage? Have you embraced the God-given institution of marriage? God calls a holy God, calls couples to holy matrimony. Does the TV you watch, the movies you watch, or the music that you listen to, does it reflect the holiness of God or does it reflect the unholiness of sinful man? I'm just asking you some questions here tonight. Is it morally deviant, perverted, and crude? Does that music bring you to worship God or to think about unholy things? Pastor, you're being legalistic. No, we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about being accepted with God. We're talking about holiness. We're talking about being different. We're talking about being, as a Christian, being restored to the nature of who God is. We need to purge our lives. We need to purge our lives. In fact, let me say it this way. The question is this, are you being as holy as God is holy? If not, we need to acknowledge our unholy living. We need to repent. 
We need to seek forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And what we'll find is that his blood will begin to cleanse and to purge our lives of everything that is unholy. And we can let God make us holy. And so because I am is still holy, we as his people should still be holy today. Father, we come to you tonight and are humbled by your holiness. It's hard to consider your holiness and our sinfulness and to even speak to you. And yet by your mercy, your grace, and your love, you've bridged the gap to draw us closer to you. And my prayer is that our church would be the light that you've called us to be in this dark city and to manifest in our lives the holiness of God, not from a holier-than-thou standpoint, but from a standpoint that shows people the beauty of who God is. And I pray that you would help us to be proper representatives of your image in this city. I pray if there's anyone who's not trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would place their faith in him, be forgiven, and watch God make them holy. So would you please speak, and thank you for reminding us of your holiness tonight. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.